Well, good morning, everyone. Energetic. I love it. Uh, our kids have worshipped with us here this morning. I pray you'll wish them well as they move into their kids' class. Uh, today, they're going to be doing something interesting. They're actually going to be, uh, through a really narrative form, walking through the, the, the narrative of the resurrection. So super thankful for our children and the men and women that labor uh, intensely to help them know and grow the love and the grace of Jesus. Uh, if you've been with us at Restoration here before at Easter, you know we have a, a custom, a tradition, where we will essentially have a salutation, a He has risen salutation. Uh, and we'll get to that here in a moment. Um, but before we do that, I want to take a quick moment just to share with you a pretty critical thing going on in the life of our, our church this morning. The, uh, the first bookend, if you will, of our talk will be that salutation. Uh, many of you have wondered about the, the picnic afterwards, and we have been trying to post pretty aggressively on Facebook what's been going on. And uh, I was able to uh, check out the field last night, and Lars, our pastoral resident, went out early this morning, um, probably when most of you were still sleeping. So make sure you pat him on the back. Uh, and he checked out the, the picnic grounds, and we're actually good to go. It's going to be a little humid today, uh, maybe a little damp, but we don't have any chance of rain until 4 I probably say that with my fingers crossed because it's Florida and rain can come at any single time during the day. But I hope you will not let overcast uh, keep you from coming to the parade. We have a team of people, uh, excuse me, the picnic. We have a team of people out there right now setting up and getting ready for it. So right after worship this morning, we'll migrate out that way, get together and uh, have a good lunch for a couple of hours uh, this afternoon to celebrate Jesus and certainly uh, the bonds of our church family. So today I want to begin, and I'm going to give you a precursor here, just in case you've not actually been with us before. Uh, there's a, a longstanding church tradition, not just ours, this is one we've inherited from men and women before us, where on Easter Sunday, um, I will say two times that he has risen, and you will say he has risen indeed, and it's kind of our affirmation that, uh, that he's real and alive and with us today. So I'd like to begin today uh, by telling you, he has risen. He has risen. He has risen. Wonderful. I'm glad that we started here, and I hope today, through our talk, to, uh, to wrestle a little bit with that idea, because for some of us, uh, we might actually deeply and distinctly believe that he has risen. We might have come from longstanding uh, pedigrees of, of faith. Uh, maybe, who knows, you are a new believer, and you have come to the reality that this is, this is true. But that is not always the case, and so each Sunday, uh, each Easter Sunday, we try to take some time to really wrestle with the reality of the resurrection. We look at it from the two most powerful poles that it re represents to us. One, the veracity of it. Is it true? And then secondly, the, the direct benefit of it, the fact that uh, we use the word hope a lot in the Christian faith, and it is directly linked to this, to this event. So with that said, let me jump right in and we'll begin our talk today. Um, as you know, at least hopefully you experience this, I do put a lot of prep time into my sermons. I feel like it's important for us to have something that is uh, honoring scripture is relevant to culture and that engages the heart and the mind. And so this week in my studies, came across an inter interesting interview uh, that a pastor friend of mine that used in a sermon a few years back. And it was from a famous German theologian who uh, passed away in 2014. His name was Wolfgang Pannenberg. And so he was interviewed about Jesus' resurrection. And he said this when asked about the reality of it. He said, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things, two main reasons. First, it's just a very unusual event. We'll talk about that here in a moment. And second, what I think is perhaps the more culturally relevant reality of this, if you believe that it happened, then at some point you have to change the way you live. That's why it is, there's such a, 
a contrarian or adversarial posture to the resurrection at times. One, it's just not natural. And two, if you, in a very spiritual way, embrace the natural nature of it, you basically say this is real, then it causes cataclysmic life change. It's the difference between now essentially making yourself the Lord of life and pursuing Jesus as the Lord of life. So every Sunday, we always take some time to both celebrate and remind our hearts for why the resurrection of Jesus is, is real and central to the Christian faith and the way that we live. So the resurrection of Jesus, simply put, has huge implications for us all, especially those of you who have made some kind of volitional decision to follow him. And that is the idea that we're going to talk about today, let's generally speak. And as we do, it's important to recognize, you know, this is, this is a day in the calendar year where we as Christians affirm something that we believe is central to our faith. But it is also well worth noting that there are many people who struggle with the idea of Jesus' resurrection. And that is not just the unbeliever, somebody who maybe is a skeptic of Christianity or, or is maybe adversarial to it. There are many believers who actually struggle with it. They might believe functionally that it's, ha- that it's happened. You know, cognitively they can say, yes, I believe this is real. But like Wolfhard said, they don't actually ever get to the place where they believe it enough that it starts to create lasting life change in them. So today we're going to try to address two important questions about the resurrection that are consistently asked by people. And if you're no longer asking them, I want to encourage you to keep asking them because there are likely people in your lives who are. The first is a very obvious one. It's in the the sermon title. Is Jesus' resurrection really possible? And then the second is deeply connected to it. If it is possible, then then why does it matter? Why does Jesus' resurrection matter? Is Easter Sunday just a day where, you know, the music is louder and the pews theoretically speaking, are more filled? Or is this really a day that actually has something powerful to do with the way God has called us to, to flourish in life? And I'm going to vote for option B. Hopefully my talk will persuade you to a certain degree of that. Now, today we're going to look at Matthew's account of the resurrection, at least some elements of it, in Matthew chapter 28. That's where we'll try to derive our answers. And I'd like to jump right in and answer what is probably the most common question about Jesus' resurrection. Simply put, is Jesus' resurrection really possible? Is it really even possible? Now, some people will never seriously consider the Christian faith or examine the evidence that supports it because they already think that they know it is just not possible um, for it to be true. And this is what we would call in life a presupposition or a bias. In other words, the the mind is already made up. And as Christians, I want to reiterate this. Uh, We need to have a great deal of empathy for a person who is at this point in their life. Because it's very likely, it's actually concretely likely, that you and I were once at the same place too. I became a Christian, you know, in my early 20s. This was not a reality for me. There was a very serious point in my life where I started to kind of weigh these, these claims, where people shared them with me. And because I've always been inclined towards the mind, that's I've shared this before, that's my primary mode of learning, I dug deep into this stuff. And I think because I had such a great skepticism prior to becoming a believer, I, I have always tried to have a great level of empathy with those that, that don't get this stuff or disagree with it. And I think that should be a normative mindset for us as Christians. We come in here concretely declaring this, but that is not the reality of a great many people. Lots of people are at this place right now in their lives. And it does us good to remember when we were. And here's what I mean kind of by this. So when, when someone hears about Jesus' rising from the dead, I would say it's pretty natural, somewhat even instinctive, for them to ask the question, how is that possible? How does this make, make sense? And that response actually does make sense. Because the foundation of our faith, Jesus' resurrection, is an event that simply isn't possible in the natural world. Okay, so know that although this has become normal, the guy comes out of the grave and redeems the world. This is normal vernacular for the Christian. It is not normal in the natural world. As you well know, people don't come back from the dead. And if they do, they write usually pretty lame books to chronicle their stories about it, right? 
seven minutes in heaven or whatever that nonsense is. I, I'm sorry if you were there or you had seven minutes in heaven. We can talk about it later. People don't naturally come back from the dead. They never have. And the resurrection event, I just want to point this out. We tend to say, well, you know, in a very naive culture 2,000 years ago, this stuff was, it was pretty hokey. So people just kind of, you know, align themselves with these realities. I'm telling you, in the Roman world, which is Jesus' world, the, rea- the reality of the resurrection was just as peculiar as it is to us. Remember, uh, the Roman culture is a pretty sophisticated society. These are not idiots. These are pretty intelligent people. And so I want to level the playing field here and say the resurrection event, it doesn't matter when it happened or would have happened. It would have been peculiar to the culture that it sat in. It certainly was for the Roman world, and it is just as peculiar for the modern world that we currently reside in or reside in. So for a great many people, when they ask the question, is Jesus' resurrection possible, it's actually not a question. It's more a, a presupposition, a statement. With what they're saying is, listen, I'm asking this because I actually don't really believe that, that this is real. And even though the question is asked, their mind is already made up about the possibility of it having happened. And what they're essentially saying is something like this. I'm not going to seriously consider the Christian faith, or at least wrestle with its evidences, because it claims that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And in the normal world, that is just not possible. So why should I even waste my time thinking about it? And I guess I want to say that that's a pretty good point. And it is something that we as believers should be engaged with. That's a, that's a question we should attempt to answer in our own hearts so that we can at least with grace share our, our answer, even if it's disagreed with. So how, how do we respond to an attitude like that? Well, we go right to what Matthew says. In Matthew 28, 2 through 3, I'll just reread this, this section. He says this. He says, There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and said, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. Now, what really stands out here is that Matthew is, is giving a, a clear account of something that he rather naturally is deeming as supernatural. The account of the resurrection here is something that defies the boundaries of normalcy in the natural world or the modern world. And why is this a significant thing to point out in light of our question? Well, because all of the resurrection accounts show us that Jesus' rising is based on there actually being a God who created a natural order of the world. And a very important thing I want to say right now, and who in select moments throughout history, for very good reason, suspended the natural laws of the world that he made. That's just a really fancy way of saying something that many people in our culture are inclined to believe is a reality. It's a fancy way of saying God did something miraculous. And so simply put, what I'm saying is this. Uh, If God really exists, follow me here, and a supernatural world really exists, this is Matthew's assumption. It's very different from the skeptic's assumption. If God really exists, and a supernatural world really exists, then of course the resurrection is at least possible. That's where we'll start. Now, I realize that might sound a bit simplistic, but it really isn't. Let me explain. For example, this is not the only person I could share here, but he's probably one of the most profound. Uh, If any of you read, and I know many of you do, uh, Dr. Francis Collins, you will know, is one of the world's leading scientists. He was over head of the National Human Genome Project that uh, labored for over a decade to reveal the human DNA sequence. And in his book, The Language of God, which is well worth reading, He says that he sees the elegance and complexity of DNA as God's language and evidence of God's existence. This is a guy um, who is a pretty brilliant scientist and a man of faith, and he's not the only one in our world. And he says this, I'm a scientist and a believer, and I find no conflict between these two worldviews. And he writes this in particular about miracles. I'll share it with you today. It'll be behind me. He says, miracles do not pose an irreconcilable conflict for the believer who trusts in science to investigate the natural world. 
Meaning, to a certain degree, we need to be careful to just juxtapose these disciplines against each other. That's not, the, that's not necessarily the, a great way to start on either end of the spectrum. And who sees that the natural world is ruled by laws. We recognize that there is a, a rhythm to nature, if you will. If, like me, you admit there might exist someone or something outside of nature, then there is no logical reason why that force could not on rare occasions stage an invasion. On the other hand, for the world to avoid descending into chaos, miracles must be very uncommon. And he references C.S. Lewis here. We will do this again in a different way at the end of my talk. He says, as Lewis has written, think about this. God does not shape miracles into nature at random as from a pepper caster. They come on great occasions. They are found at the great ganglions of history. That's why we call them miracles in scripture. They're pretty rare. And they have very pointed reasons behind them. And so what Collins, a man who deeply respects the disciplines of faith and science, is saying is this. Be careful to avoid making an uninformed mistake of ruling out the resurrection of Jesus before you seriously examine the facts. Check the bias is what he says. And you see, some people will never actually check the bias. They will, they will in a, with a form of kind of academic intelligence, say uh, this is just ridiculous without actually weighing the reality of the facts. Some people never take a serious look at the resurrection of Jesus. There are a myriad of reasons. Uh, for, for example, maybe it's just your training. You know? Maybe you grew up in a world or you're in, involved in a discipline now where you're called to be very skeptical. Uh, maybe you have a family background that dictates this. I can tell you this is my story. Um, I grew up in a South Brooklyn Italian family and my dad like told us to trust each other, sort of. Like, that's the way that it was in the house. Trust was a premium in my home, and it still is today. My wife will tell you, I tend to, predominantly, when you look at Jesus' analogy of, of dove and serpent, I tend to migrate more towards the serpent, not in my behavior, but more in the skeptical nature of the way that I see things. That's a bias. It's a good one to a certain degree. It's healthy to ask questions. And I did many with Jesus. I mean, if I'm going to give my life to this guy, I had some serious things I needed sorted out. But it's important to recognize that if you're training causes you to be hyper-skeptical, or your family background, or what I think is more common today, uh, contrasting views on morality, what happens is, is some people just know to follow Jesus means you've got to be different. I can tell you um, there are areas in, in our lives, I don't mean to kind of bloviate here, but the, I view like money and time, things that are distinctly called mine, right, in our modern culture, these things I see very differently now. There's a different lens upon which I view them through. This is the reality of following Jesus. And I think a lot of people know that um, if you actually read Jesus' writings in the Gospel of John, his teachings, he associates there being some kind of a cost with following him. And the more you follow Jesus, the greater the cost becomes. And I think for a lot of people, they just recognize that the cost is a little too great to give up. So therefore, I will not, or I will have some kind of, uh, it's like an amalgamation of faith. They've taken a bunch of things that when put together become something different. It's sort of like Christianity, but actually isn't. And all of these reasons, and many that we don't even have time to answer this morning, they highlight that as people we can actually have a, a deep bias against belief in God, belief in God, the reality of his presence and, and his, his presence in the world, right, in our lives. Now, I want to be very frank here. If you do the research and you end up here, like if you start with saying, I'll look at it, but I've ended up at the place, and many people do where they say, I just can't do this, the Jesus thing's not for me. Um, that's one thing, and obviously... As a pastor or a church planner, my hope is that that is not where you arrive, or you have people in your life. My hope is they do not arrive there. But at least if you've, if you've done the due diligence, you can at that point say with a reasonable confidence, you weighed the facts and you just couldn't believe. But if you outright start from that adversarial position, that is an entirely other thing. And that, at least for this Resurrection Sunday, is what we're talking about. That is really a biased, prejudiced, and uninformed decision. 
And somewhat ironically, this is often the accusation leveled against those who have weighed the evidence of Jesus' resurrection and chosen to follow him. And I'm not saying that there are not people who in the name of Jesus function in biased, prejudiced, and uninformed ways. Please hear me. That's not the case. It's never been the posture of our church. But it is interesting that just, just having an essential belief in Jesus can automatically be relegated to that, to that place. And I don't agree with that. That's why we have to wrestle with these issues. See, that's where a great many people's biased disbelief against God stems from. Think about this. It's not where they arrive. It's actually where they start. And I find that there's an increasingly interesting contradiction in this way of thinking in our modern world. Because it is undeniable that we are living in a culture uh, steeped in the discipline of science in very important ways, uh, very necessary ways, valued ways. But we are also in a culture that has an increasingly growing appetite for the spiritual things of life. Now, please note, uh, the Christian faith is deeply spiritual. I mean, we have uh, a guy in it called the Holy Spirit, highlighting the essential nature of the spirituality of the Christian faith. It's much more than just, you know, in unfortunate ways. It's been communicated at times as just a new form of morality. But I'm telling you, there is something deeply significant and spiritual about connecting to the God of the universe through the power of his Holy Spirit, of recognizing the cosmic sacrifice Jesus made for us. The well of the Christian faith is very deep. And oftentimes it's most misrepresented by those who just kind of tool around on the surface of it. So our culture is increasingly spiritual. But to be spiritual, the assumption here is not that by being spiritual or desiring spirituality, that, that people desire Jesus. There is a distinction there. Spirituality, but not necessarily the, this kind of spirituality Jesus calls us to. And so this is why it's increasingly common to meet people who deeply believe in a supernatural world a spiritual world that exists beyond what they can see. And the reason they value this is because it tends to give them, as does the Christian faith, a greater meaning and significance in life. Life takes on a whole new role when you know you've got more than just 80 years on this earth. Best case scenario for most of us, right? That's about the average death of the American male. I think it's 78 or something. My wife will outlive me, and that's good because she's smarter than me. She'll do better with my children, right? There's, there's, a, there's a shelf life on life. And if you see that end cap, kind of like last week where we looked at Richard, Richard Dawkins' quotes about atheism, that it really does kind of... It devalues life. But when you recognize that there is a cosmic grace that God shows you now, a presence here and for all of eternity, that starts to broaden the boundaries of life. People want that. They want significance and meaning. Most of us do anyways. What I find the contradiction, though, is that on one hand, people will affirm that. They will affirm the spirituality of life, long for it. Yet then they will then deny the existence of Jesus based on the spiritual and supernatural nature of who he claimed to be and what he claimed to do. Um, I don't know that you can have your cake and eat it, too, in that sense. They just can't get their heads wrapped around his resurrection reality happening. They will believe in the spiritual, but then say that's just not possible. Now, my favorite example of this is one I've shared with you before a few years ago. It's the story. Uh, I once had a, a lunch with a guy at a Mexican restaurant, and that sounds like the, bad, the beginning of a really bad joke. Once had lunch with a guy at a Mexican restaurant. That's not what I mean. Here. This is a true story. Um, who flat out told me uh, that my faith was ridiculous because it was based on believing on an invisible God um, who I only know as visible because of a faulty book we have called Scripture. And, you know, one of the things I've learned over the years is that lots of people have lots of questions about the faith, and it's important to kind of get to the roots of their questions. So while there are good responses to those major accusations, that was actually not the point that he was driving at that day. So I stayed away from them. Certainly things we can dialogue about, but not the main point there. The Christian faith actually has some pretty good responses to that. But they were not pertinent to our conversation today. In our world, we want to get to the root of the heart. We don't want to address the... The biases. We want to get to the root of why somebody has a belief or disbelief issue. And so I simply asked him, what, if anything, did he believe in? 
And it was very clear he perked up that he believed in a lot of stuff. And he went on to tell me that while he thought the idea of a, of a resurrected Jesus was crazy, he did consider himself deeply spiritual person. And then he went on to tell me the tenets of his faith. And make no mistake about it, that's exactly what his spirituality was. It was a personal faith. Midway through the conversation, it became very clear to me that, that he had essentially fashioned a God in his own image and a faith to pursue him based on what he thought the world should look like. He had personal opinions of what he alone thought faith was, on how he defined spirituality, on what he deemed as a personal morality. He had very distinct views on these things. And at the end of the day, what happened was he, he was literally worshiping himself, where in the Christian faith, we would objectively try to pursue God in those areas. This is a person who created a faith and religion based on what he thought was important in life. And there's a great contradiction in this thought. It is one that is very common with people who see Christianity like this, because he was saying Christianity, okay, this is a, a whether you believe it or not, it is a historical faith. It is rooted. You've got roughly 4,000 years of Israel birthing it in the New Testament. You've got like millennia of the Christian faith, right? 2,000 years New Testament. It has historically changed the face of the earth. It has been practiced by countless people. There have been men and women who have given their lives for it. He's saying, listen, this is ridiculous. But my faith, which I'm making up as I go along, over a bowl of free tortillas at a terrible Mexican restaurant, this is... This is legitimate. Is it? I don't think so. And the point there was not even to tell him his faith was illegitimate. It was just to say, if we're going to put the, the facts on the scale, the Christian faith is going to take the salsa-oriented religion out. Now, you see, I want you to hear me and why I'm saying this. This is not a talk to convince you into anything. That's not our posture here. I, I don't think that we have words that can, uh, we might be able to, to create some, some questions in your mind, but ultimately the, the changing of the heart is, is the responsibility of God's spirit. So this talk is not as much concerned about trying to convince you to have faith. That's never our posture here. We just want to present different ideas to you about why you should consider whether or not you do. Or uh, in the case of today, if you are an existing Christian, maybe this is much more a challenge for you to think about if what you currently have faith in is the right thing. And I just want to say this, if you, if you have faith, if the resurrection is a past tense reality with a present effect on your life, then you need to know that to have faith does not necessarily mean, and in our culture, at church culture, I think it concretely does not mean that you have forfeited the right to stop using your mind. It actually shows to a very real degree that you have chosen to use your mind to question something that most of the skeptics of our faith will not. We will question, or they will not question, the root of their own belief system. If you want truth in life, you've got to get through the bias. And some people just don't. And that's why they live in a false narrative. They refuse to put their own skepticism and cynicism under the same scalpel that they so willingly and easily put Jesus under. So today, let me say clearly, always it's important, no matter where we are on our faith journey, to check the bias. To try, if we want truth, then we've got to try, in God's grace, to be objective about what we're sorting out. We've got to give the evidence a chance. And having said this, kind of reasoned with the idea of evidence, I want to point out that it is worth pointing out that there is a large body of evidence that supports the Christian faith and resurrection. It's not enough to convince your heart, but it is, it is enough to get you asking some questions. Matthew gives us several lines of evidence, okay? The most important being that the tomb was empty. In verse 6, he tells us this. He's not here. We just meditated on this. He is risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Now, throughout history, there have been many attempts to explain the empty tomb. 
Lots of kind of conspiracy theories that, that explain why Jesus was not there, why the scriptural accounts and, and frankly, the, the faith of Christianity kind of exploded. There is something that happens in the first century world, something cataclysmic that like a fireball blows the Christian faith into the world. So we can't just act like that hadn't happened. So what happens is there are now attempts or have always been attempts to explain the empty tomb. And I would say these are alternative explanations that, that really don't hold up if you give them some, some serious thought. And I'd like to just walk through a few of them briefly. For starters, perhaps the most significant one is that Jesus fakes his death. You know, uh, that he somehow, I guess, figured out a way to be in the tomb or wasn't in the tomb. And that's why it was empty. And we know scripturally speaking and historically speaking, the Roman soldiers were tasked with making sure he was dead. That's, a, uh, that's an offense that, that re- remember, it's death in a Roman army. So to, to essentially just, you know, skip that duty was not just like getting some kind of administrative punishment in the, in the Roman army. It likely meant you would be crucified like the common criminal was. And so while I think you can say, well, you know, the Roman soldiers uh, didn't realize that he was actually dead, um, I think that, that that theory is problematic. The idea that Jesus faked his death uh, is really an issue. The Roman guard, it, it's more of a question that that would have been permitted than it would have actually have happened. Here's another one. If the enemies of Christianity, this is another one, they, the theory is they took the body. Like some have said, you know, that Jesus, they, they, they got it out there. They did not want the world to know that he was alive. What I'm telling you is that this is more ridiculous than the first one. Because if you are an enemy of Christianity and the, the birth of the faith is going to be built on this idea that Jesus comes back from the dead and you actually have his body, it would make great sense that you would present it to the world or at least your world at that point. You would say, look, you're saying believe in God that this is the only son of God because of the resurrection and I've got the dead body right here. If you stole the body and you were an adversary of Christianity, it would make sense that you would want people to still know that he was in the grave. But that's not what happened. There's another theory that the disciples had stolen the body. They, they hid it to kind of falsely birth the Christian faith. This is another theory used to deny the resurrection, the empty tomb. Um, and, and I guess if, if you need a completely natural example or, or, or excuse for this, for why it, had, it did or didn't happen, then this is one you can offer. But then you have to ask another question. Would any of you... For example, think of you, those of you that have children. Your love is so deep for them, right? There is a truth in that. I can tell you honestly that I would step in front of a train for my children, for my wife, for my family. There is a truth that causes a real action. Would you do that for a lie? Would you, would you literally, as all of the disciples were, they all wind up giving their lives to Jesus. Do you give your life for something that is untrue, to fake the, great, the, the greatest you know, hoax in history? They died for something much more significant. And the byproduct of their death is pretty powerful because the gospel moves to the world. These things just don't make sense. And what makes most sense here is that the tomb, maybe we can, to a a certain degree, take Matthew at his word and the other gospel accounts and the stories of history. Maybe the tomb really was empty. And the reason these things happened and the spread of Christianity moved through the world was because no one had the body except for Jesus. Because it was his body. Resurrected, of course. What if there was more evidence? Let's, let's look through this. What if there was more evidence that supported the possibility of you at least trusting that Jesus' resurrection was possible or maybe even trips the line for it actually happening? Let me give you some, some alternative theories of what happened. What if Jesus simply appeared in a dream to one of his closest friends? So be behind me. Would this be enough? One person in a dream. What if the body was simply just gone from the tomb? If we disagreed on that, would that be enough to believe? What if he appeared alive to one of his friends? Would that be enough? What if he appeared to more than one of his friends, but only once in history? Is that going to be enough for you? 
What if he appeared to more than one person multiple times, but only to close friends with similar backgrounds and personalities? He only went to other, you know, in the, in the first century vernacular, uh, God-fearing Jewish people. He went to people that he knew would be biasedly for him. Would that be enough? What if he appeared to more than one person, sometimes to large groups, multiple times, right? Some people being skeptical or hostile in numerous locations over an extended period of time, but all the people were shy about it. In other words, a lot of people saw him, but they said, I realize to follow Jesus means the cost might be great and I might lose my life. So what happens is they, they affirm it internally, but they, because of fear, they refuse to follow Jesus because of persecution. Would that be enough to birth a global movement that we still celebrate today? Or, meditate with me for a moment. What if I told you Jesus appeared to more than one person, sometimes to large groups, multiple times, the people sometimes being skeptical or hostile, in numerous locations over an extended period of time. And many of those people were so convinced of the truth of the resurrection that it actually radically changed them. Wolfhard's second point. Did it happen? Yes. Did it create change? Yes. That's why we're here. They're so convinced of the truth of the resurrection that it changes them radically. To the point where they then proclaim and f- proclaim it fearlessly, even though it often, and in many cases, costs them their lives. What if I told you the record of their eyewitness testimony was not just passed on an, an oral tradition, but it was, re- it was preserved in a book we call Scripture, a book that gets far more negative press than it often deserves. One that we would definitively say is a reliable document of ancient history with more collaborating manuscripts, scholarly scrutiny, uh, and, and global popularity than any other text in history. What if I said these were the facts of Jesus' resurrection? At that point, would it be enough? Because that is actually what happened. That is the large body of evidence. Many other things that we've talked about in years past. The fact that it is women in the first century world who are the forerunners of the account of Jesus' resurrection. And in a first century patriarchal society where women are devalued, it does the Christian faith no benefit to make a woman your forerunner. To to proclaim the news of the kingdom. But even in that sense, Jesus begins to level this amazing equality. He begins to show that it doesn't matter preference, age, race, gender. It's not, this is not what God chooses for. He chooses those who care for him and love for him. God sets a new standard. Would that be enough? These are the facts. And they are worth intelligently considering. No matter where you find yourself for Jesus today. Believing in them for the first time. Wrestling them for the first time. Or more deeply understanding them. So that you can be on the mission of God, being an agent of his grace in the world he's put you in, to be his hands and his healing feet. You see, in his book, Simply Christian, N.T. Wright, quote him pretty regularly, he's an English pastor, was a bishop in the Anglican Church overseas. He's an historian and a scholar, and the the reason we read him a good bit is because he's also... Uh, even in his academic ventures, he's never disconnected himself from the pastoral office. This is a guy who gets truth and, and puts it in our hands on the local level. It's where we love him. He says this about the reality of the resurrection we're discussing today. He writes, this kind of conclusion, and in this case the conclusion is the resurrection happened. This kind of conclusion is always frustrating uh, from a scientific point of view. Science, after all, rightly studies phenomena that can be repeated in laboratory conditions. This is the point of the scientific method. You're trying to repeat events to to show that they're consistent and actually happening. But history, keep in mind now, history doesn't. And this is not just Christian history. Historians study things that happen once and once only. There is only one World War II. You can't reinvent those events to study them. And even if there are partial parallels, each historical event is unique. And the historical argument is quite clear. To repeat far and away the best explanation for why Christianity began after Jesus' violent death 
is that he really was bodily alive again three days later in a transformed body. Only two of you? For real? Like, amen? Like, can we get like a 45%, like at least a quorum of majority? All right, that's much better. I am not going to the picnic. Forget this, man. I'm out. Out. So think about this, right? The bottom line in all of this is this. If God exists, and many of us believe that, lots of people in the world think God or a God exists. Or if you believe that there is at least a possibility of him existing, the spiritual, but you're not yet convinced. This is what we would call for you theologues. This is agnosticism. Something's out there, a greater force. I don't exactly know that it's the God of the Christian faith, but it's out there. If you believe in the spiritual, the supernatural, but not necessarily Jesus, then at the very least, you can't say it isn't possible. At the very least, you have to say it is possible. I might not believe it, or I might believe it, but it is possible. It just makes sense that a person would at least objectively look at the claims in the resurrection of Jesus before they, in a biased and maybe even an informed way, flat out deny them. And for those of you in Jesus, the same is true when God calls us to new truths. It's the same thing. We can't kick against the goad when God is trying to lead us into a deeper level of love and relationship with him. The bias we should have is that God loves and cares for us. And if he calls us to a different level of cost in life, no matter what it may be, we should trust that it is because God loves us. And there is often, like we've talked about with suffering over these past weeks, there is often a greater purpose in what he is leading us out of and into than we often give him credit for. God doesn't do things in our lives because he doesn't care for us. He deeply cares for us. The cross is the evidence of that. So in any way, in any place, Christian or not, Let's make sure that we don't make uninformed decisions about God. Make your arrival point that. You get to the place where you don't believe or you you step away or whatever it is. But don't make that the starting point. And this leads me to the second question I want to rather briefly touch on this morning. And I say this pretty regularly. Don't let my brevity kind of communicate to you that this is not important because it is. It's aimed at addressing another type of resurrection doubt. There are many we can talk about. But the two today are, is it real? Did it happen? And the second is this. If Jesus' resurrection really did happen, then why does it matter? You know, the Christian faith, contrary to popular belief, it's not just a treatise in academic philosophy. It is that. There's a rabbit hole very deep in the faith for those of you that, that want to process this stuff in your mind. But the Christian faith also has a very practical and purposeful meaning in life. It isn't just what does God say. There's also the point of now, how does this shape everyday living? And when it comes to the resurrection, some of us struggle with a very different kind of doubt, as, as significant as the first. Some of us really do believe it happened. We just can't seem to wrap our hearts around this life-changing promise of hope that Jesus has offered us through it. It's what, what Wolfhart said, right? It's just natural. And second is that it, it doesn't breathe, breathe change. The cost is so substantial. Or, or maybe we begin to doubt the resurrection because we read about power and hope and grace and truth and all these cosmic words. But then mi- life is just miserable on Tuesday. We're in bad relationships, or uh, life is tough on the home front. We're having problems with our children, or work is miserable, whatever it is. Sometimes we hear about the hope, but we don't experience it. And this is why the Easter message is so important to us, because Jesus' resurrection wasn't meant to simply be a miracle that wowed the world into belief. It is meant to be the evidence of God's overcoming power, of his life-changing grace that you and I have been invited to live in. It's not just something to think about. It is a grace and truth to live in. The resurrection is proof positive of the fulfillment of many promises God has made us. But the alpha one, the overarching promise, is one of redemption. It's one of God's, it's it's God's long-awaited fulfillment of this process, of the promise to give us a victorious, hope-filled, abundant life. The resurrection matters like right now. So if you're stuck in your faith right now, wrestling with doubt, 
Maybe you have feelings of hopelessness. You're going to want to pay attention to these closing remarks. Maybe you're just, you're in the middle of the mountain, no longer at the peak of it. Life's just been hard. I want you to pay attention to these, these closing remarks. The reason we long for hope, the reason why hope is almost universally a human condition is because God made us to have it and to dwell in it permanently. And so naturally, our souls hunger for hope when we are without it. Hope is a greater meaning in life. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. And he gives us some examples. He says, a baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find myself, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Hope we know we can have in the present. It can be given to us by peripheral circumstances, but no circumstance is enough to give you permanent and eternal hope, yet we long for it. How many of you wake up saying, God, or your deity, whatever it is, give me a really bad week this week. You don't say that, right? We long for something better, for peace. We long for the turbulencies of life to be tranquil. We long for hope because we've been built to have it. You see, you and I were made to be creatures of hope, and the resurrection gives you a great promise of hope with life-changing implications. And the biggest being this. Jesus' resurrection has set you free from the shame of sin, and he's given you a secure identity in God. It's very common to hear a person, even a Christian, say they've lost their hope in life. Uh, and a lot of times this is because they carry with them things that, that are, it's like, it's like a bondage. There are things past, present, or maybe even uh, concerned about the future that, that really are keeping you from becoming free in the way that God has set you free, the cross and the resurrection. And to various degrees, every one of us has something in our past, maybe even our present, that has sought to rule us. You know, in Scripture, these are called thorns in your side. They're just the things that, that might keep you from be, being who God wants you to be. You know, maybe you grew up in a household where it was extremely negative and you were always reminded of what you can, can't do and you remember that now. Or maybe on the contrary, you know, you, you grew up in a life where you didn't fail a lot and therefore pride is your issue now. You know, and so the future, uh, there's an arrogance in you, something that cripples you in a different way. No matter what it is, past, present, or future, sometimes the weight of those things, it's crushing. It is a bondage. It becomes a taskmaster, a cruel one, always whispering into our ears of past failures, reminding us of past hurts. It's reminding us of our mistakes. It's like a dagger twisting the, the hurt more deeply into our hearts, not seeking to set us free, but to keep us you know, in chains. And if you're here today stuck in the past or a present sin like that, I want you to take heart and know that the resurrection gives you a different voice to listen to. We use this analogy a lot. Lots of voices are going to seek to define you in life. But the one that matters most in your life is the God who gave his life for you. You see, when Jesus went to the cross, he neutered the weight of that shame. Not just, you know, we, we often talk about uh, sin from the angle of, of propitiation. And what this simply means is that uh, God dealt with the wrath of, the, of, of sin. Very important Christian belief. But the one that is often neglected from the front of the room is expiation. The fact that God also gave you the freedom to no longer function in shame. The, the shame, even the negative consequences, failed relationships, problems, the things you wish you could take back. The cross and Jesus' death for you bore that burden too. So when you live under the, cr the crushing bondage, of failure and shame, no matter what the source of it is, if you are in Jesus, you are living in a way that is contrary to the way Jesus has set you free from. 
He bore the full weight of those things on our behalf so that you and I would not have to anymore. So that we could in part live in the grace of hope today and in full never hear the word. We won't even have the word shame in our lives when we're in heaven. That won't even be there. It's not even going to be a, a, a blip in our heads. Because in full, God will make all things right. That's hope. The scripture says that he set us free from that emotional and spiritual bondage, no matter what it is. And in doing so, gave us an entirely new identity rooted in the power of his love and grace. One that changes life. One that that causes us to live in the ways of God. To function in his hope. And so this means no matter how you see yourself, God does not look at you or love you in accordance to your failures. He sees you and loves you as his child, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. So God says, and I don't say this a lot because I don't ever want to screw that up, but God says, stop dwelling in your sins and your hurts because they were nailed to the cross. I can say that one confidently. And like Jesus, you've been raised to walk in a newness of life. This is the belief of expiation. God took the shame. He took not just sin, but the consequence of it, the negativity that it often births in our lives. So I ask you today, if you, if you struggle with shame and hopelessness or whatever adjective I'm not mentioning... <laughs> If you're wondering if God could ever really love you or forgive you, you do not have to struggle anymore because he's already answered that question for you. And I'd like you to repeat the answer for me. Because he has risen. One more time. Because he has risen. Don't let your life be ruled by shame. Stop listening to the voices of others, especially, especially when they are on contrary, or our contrary statement about who God says you are. Stop listening to what others say about you if it's hurting your character, if it is untrue in God's eyes, and believe more deeply what God says about you. He has declared you his own. He said you're beautiful in his eyes. You are an object of his love and his grace and his affection. And that's why we can confidently say, like our German friend Wolfhard, that the resurrection should cause some change in your life. So as you consider the life-changing implications of the resurrection in your life, no matter how you have entered this room, please know this. The mark that you're living in the power of Jesus' resurrection It does not mean that your life is perfect. Hope does not mean perfection. Even the most mature Christians, especially those of you generations ahead of us who have walked with Jesus for a very long time, you know, perhaps more sharply than anybody, that the most mature Christians endure seasons of winter. There isn't always spring or summer in the Christian life. We all have times when the branches of life are dry and the fruit has stopped coming. We have times when we are doubting, when we are denying, when we are discouraged, and we are depressed. Everyone has those seasons. If you don't believe that, I just talked about suffering for four straight weeks. We get these seasons. Nobody is exempt from them, in Jesus or, or not in Jesus. But the operative word I want to focus on here is season. Because for the Christian, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in his resurrection, and if you believe that the cross means you can have hope, and the fact that he he overcomes every problem of the world out of the grave, if you believe that, then you have to know that, using a different analogy, while we might be buried in the snow of winter, for the Christian, the sun always rises. It's one of the marks that you are his. When you are in Jesus at some point, I wish I could give you a timeline, but I can't. For some of us, it's very long seasons. For some of us, it seems like the season is too long and it'll never end. But for the believer, when you are in Jesus, at some point it has to end. At some point, the sun has to rise. Even in the worst of scenarios, you know, when the physical life ends, that is a season of winter. But eventually, when you are with Christ forever, the sun rises. There is no promise the hope of Jesus does not deal with. And what this means is if you truly believe in the resurrection, number two, to the point where it changes you, then you have to choose to shape your life in light of Jesus' promised hope. That's got to be where you function from. Your assumption should not be despair. It should be the light of Christ's hope. 
Now listen, this promise really matters to those of us in Jesus. It matters to those of you here who want hope or, or, or without it. Because if you've ever tried to live out your life, or in particular for the believer, your faith apart from the resurrection hope of Christ, you know it is like disconnecting yourself from the power source of all spiritual vitality. Faith tends to become powerless, it becomes frustrating, it becomes apathetic. The gospel attitudes of faith, of hope and joy, they get overpowered by doubt, cynicism, and sorrow. So if you feel this way right now, we affirm that. We recognize this is a reality of the human rhythm. I'm not trying to cheapen that. That's a real thing we go through. I just want to challenge you this day to think about what it means to stop dwelling on despair and to start doubting the doubt. What does it mean to think about what hope could look like in your situation? What does it mean to think about trusting Jesus' promises once again? Because that doubt, whether it is academic, philosophical, or emotional, will be the roadblock keeping you from experiencing the hope that Jesus offers you and took so seriously that he died for you to have. So today's Easter message is really about identifying and removing some of the doubt roadblocks that will rob you from experiencing Christ's promises of life that he offers you. Whether you wrestle with it here or here, ask yourself why. This morning, do this. Ask yourself, what is your faith in? And should you keep it there? If you're in a season of doubt, why is it not in Christ? If it's in a season of Christ, but but you're not counting the cost enough, why not? If you're here a skeptic of the faith, ask the hard question. Arrive at an informed answer, but at least have the guts to ask the question. Ask yourself if it's time to take your next step with Jesus. And I would encourage you to believe in him and to let the life-changing power of his resurrection change you forever because he has risen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for... We thank you for a wonderful Sunday. A day where we distinctly think about the promise of hope that you have offered us in your son, Jesus. We pray now, Father, as we take a time, we've, we have been invested in a great deal this morning. We have received through hanging out with people. We've received from you through worship. We've received from you through the word. This is a time where you have poured into us in a pretty significant way. We ask now, though, God, as we move into this time of reflection and response, just a time of solitude. This is a time where we, we take a few minutes just to think, pray, and reflect that you would truly now speak to us, that this would be the time now where we ask the question, God, thank you for pouring into me. Now, what do you expect of me? I pray that this would be a time where we focus on the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that whatever challenges or struggles or trials we have entered this room with, whatever biases we have, that we would, for a brief moment in a world that is incredibly busy, take a moment of quiet solitude to think, pray, and process who we are in light of you. And may, God, we leave this conversation with you encouraged. Focus on your, ever, focus on your everlasting love, hope, and the promises that you want to be present in our life. Use this time now, God, we have to help us grow and know who you are more deeply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.